From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. People with illnesses other than COVID-19 are foregoing care to free up the healthcare system, like this woman who passes out sometimes because her chronic pain is so bad. We're not getting talked about, and a lot of us are willing to make this sacrifice, but having that sacrifice go unacknowledged makes it difficult to accept that it's the right thing to do. Today, a better understanding of the governor's order to suspend elective and non-essential medicine. Then, a conversation about coronavirus con artists with Colorado's attorney general. Plus, the do's and don'ts of mask wearing. And while this campaign is coming to an end, our movement is not. With Senator Bernie Sanders out of the race, a discussion of democratic unity. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We are all being asked to make a sacrifice to protect public health, but the extent of that sacrifice varies. Healthcare workers are putting their lives on the line. Grocery store clerks have become heroes. We're going to begin, though, with a sacrifice that gets less attention. Coloradans with health problems other than COVID-19 whose care has been delayed or canceled to make sure there's capacity in the healthcare system. We'll profile these folks from time to time. Today, Andy Rudman of Boulder. She has a rare syndrome called Clipple File. The governor's suspension of elective and non-essential medicine now means virtual office visits and the cancellation of therapies that ease her suffering. Chronic pain is one of the main issues that I deal with. And the way I deal with it is basically doing lots of physical therapy, some medications, injections, and all that kind of stuff. And without those, my pain has increased, uh, both my neurologic pain, my muscle spasms, and my arthritic pain. Yeah, describe what that is like. You know, it's often that doctors have us describe pain on like a one to 10 scale, or I've seen those posters, right, that have faces in descending or ascending order of excruciatingness. That's not a word. Um, But how would you describe your pain from day to day, Andy, and help us understand how that has changed since the postponement of, you know, regular medical procedures? Yeah, so I really have a visceral dislike of those one to 10 scales. I'm just really bad at using them. But I think uh, I have broken my arm and this hurts about as bad as that. Um, I'd say about once, I'd say about once a month I pass out from pain. I don't sleep well. It's a pretty significant amount of chronic pain. I'm on opioids to help deal with it. And um, it's never completely managed, which is why so many of these treatments are important. And since everything's been canceled, my pain has definitely increased. At this point, I am pretty much in bed all day. I'm not able to do much of anything. It's a lot of just management. You know, it's like, all right, if I want to go play this video game, I can do it for two hours, but then it's going to take me a day to recover. And uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult. I'm sorry to hear that. I can't imagine pain so bad you pass out. I've not ever had that experience, and I hate that you have it. Um, Do you think that should be dealt with differently? Or do you think, at this moment, I understand the forces at play, and this is the the reality that I, I have to get comfortable with? 
You know, I have mixed feelings about it because I am willing to make this sacrifice to save lives, but I worry that it sets a precedent where this will happen every time there is any kind of global disease outbreak. And for me and other patients, I'm sure it will cut years off of our lives and make us have significant issues during quarantines. And Well, hold on there. Uh, that, that's know, a really important thing you just said, that you think that it might reduce the length of your life. We know that it's having an effect on the quality, but the length? Yeah, I have a um, heart condition that is supposed to be monitored. I haven't been able to get in to talk to people about that. And, you know, anytime I am increased in pain, I have more likelihood to have my heart problems increase. And Mm. chronic pain just causes all sorts of significant issues with your body. Now, chances are the length of time issues with me will be minimized. But I also know people who have had cancer treatments canceled. And that's a lot more immediate and tangible. Let me say that heart problems are associated with Klippel file syndrome. Do I have that right? Yes, that's yeah. correct. So just explain, what is Klippel file briefly? I know that it also has to do with your bones. And what does it mean about how you live life day to day? So Klippel file is a genetic or developmental disease. For me, it's genetic that causes significant birth effects in certain areas of the body, especially the heart, the kidneys, and uh, the spine. It's particularly known for causing congenital fusions of the cervical spine. So, for example, I have almost all of my neck vertebra fused, and that's from birth, not from surgery. So is that that something I would see if I were looking at you? Like, does that demonstrate physically? Yeah, it's not like... There are people with clipophile that are much more obvious in their phenotype. Mm -hmm. But for me, you would look at me and you'd say, wow, that is a very short person. And she basically doesn't have a neck. (laughs) You can can see it on me, but, you know, it's not as obvious as with some other people who have the condition. And you're in a wheelchair. Do I have that right? Yes. I'm not in a wheelchair 100% of the time. I can walk short distances, but I do use a wheelchair if I'm going to be out for any length of time. And how would you say then having clipple file does change your daily experience? Well, at this point, I am fully on disability. I don't work. I live at home with my dad. I can't really cook or clean or do laundry for myself. Um, so I need help with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most significant impact on me is the pretty severe chronic pain that I have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. You, you talked about telemedicine earlier. How has that been? Are there ways in which that feels like good connection and helpful? And in what ways has it fallen short? It depends on the doctor and it depends on what I need from them. For example, I see a therapist who specializes in chronic pain patients. And for him, we've been talking over FaceTime and that has worked really well. It feels like I haven't lost all that much of that experience. But for my other doctors, for example, the doctor who's supposed to be doing my injections, the only contact I've really had with them so far is I was able to talk to one of their uh, PAs and she prescribed me 
some medication that I think was sort of a stopgap measure. And then I asked her, so what do I do if this gets uncontrollable, which it is at this point? Hmm. And her response was to tell me to just go to the ER, which I've done that before and not had a lot of efficacy from it. And it's not really where I want to be at this particular moment, both in terms of you know, making sure that I'm not wasting doctor's time. And also, I don't want to be exposed to anything that might be in an ER. Um, and I just thought that was really poor advice. Like, yeah, I know that the ER exists. And if something really bad happens, I should go there. And that's not to say that, like, if you have a significant medical emergency, you should still be going to the ER. Mm. They will still see you. And it's important. And I worry that people will not go to the ER and then they'll have these significant issues that go untreated or get worse significantly before they get treated. I guess before we go, do you think that in the face of COVID-19, which is obviously urgent, emergent, that people with chronic conditions have to some extent been left out of the equation or forgotten? Absolutely. I think that a lot of you know, sort of vulnerable populations are the ones being asked to make the biggest sacrifices. So people with chronic illness who are not getting treatment and you know, people who are victims of domestic violence who are having to stay home with their abusers. You know, and we're not getting talked about. And a lot of us are willing to make this sacrifice. Like we think it's important and we are absolutely willing to do it. But having that sacrifice go unacknowledged makes it more difficult to accept that it's the right thing to do. Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, mixed feelings on that one as well. Andy, thanks so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, thank you. 29-year-old Andy Rudman of Boulder, the cancellation and postponement of elective and non-essential medicine means foregoing treatment for her chronic pain. Andy has a rare syndrome called Klippel File. By the way, most doctors she meets haven't heard of it. She adds that she wrote most of the Wikipedia entry about it, too. Okay, let's get some broader perspective on the cancellation and postponement of some surgeries and treatments. CPR's Claire Cleveland is on the phone. Hi, Claire. Hey, Ryan. Let's be more specific. What exactly is gained by postponing care for folks like Andy? Well, for one, um, I think it's important to note that it's a hard decision for providers to make. Um, the doctors I've spoken to have said that they are doing their best to weigh the needs of those patients like Andy against the needs to combat this virus. Mm. However, there are two big drivers for postponing elective and non-essential healthcare services. One is the lack of personnel and the personal protective equipment they need. Every surgery and every patient visit requires gloves and face masks and sometimes gowns or shoe coverings. It's a lot of gear to protect providers and patients, and the country as a whole has a shortage of that gear. Plus, with thousands of cases of COVID, doctors and nurses are seeing more patients with a disease that they've never seen before, and they're working really hard to keep up. And what's the other driver? The second driver is keeping hospital beds open and keeping hospitals relatively clear of people who don't absolutely need to be there. Um, in Colorado, we know there's a shortage of intensive care unit beds, filling them with surgery patients, for example, who 
could wait not only puts them at a higher risk of potentially contracting the virus, um, it also puts those who may suffer a severe COVID-19 case at risk of not having a bed in the hospital. Okay, when you hear elective surgeries, it might be that like facelifts come to mind, maybe a joint replacement, but it really is broader than that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, An elective surgery is actually any surgery that a doctor and a patient set a certain date for. So that's a surgery to remove a cancerous mass or, um, like you said, a knee or a hip replacement. It can also include a transplant surgery. I've actually spoken with one man who lives near Grand Junction. He had his liver transplant surgery postponed and was setting up hospice. He's now had the procedure, and I hope to catch up with him soon. My goodness, I'll look forward to that story. Yeah. Um, In any case, Dr. Jeffrey Cross, he's the head of surgery at St. Anthony's Hospital in Lakewood, explained that elective surgeries fall into two categories, urgent and non-urgent, and he gave this example. Somebody with a cancer, let's say a colon cancer, it might not need to be done today or this week, but it shouldn't be put off for a month or two because of the potential risk for spread. So that person is going to get scheduled sooner rather than later, but some procedures will be put off until after the pandemic altogether. Um, Ultimately, it's on a case-by-case basis. There are literally thousands of operations, and there's decisions for each one, and in this pandemic, the question that I ask the surgeons whether it needs to go or not is, is this something that can wait a month? And if they say, no, it really needs to go now or this week or next week, then that would be one that we allow to be put forth onto the schedule. But Claire, if thousands of operations are postponed, I mean, how is that going to affect scheduling procedures into the future? Yeah, losing weeks or even months to perform these procedures could result in some serious backlogs for hospitals. Um, Dr. Cross told me that's a big part of the discussion at his hospital right now. If we need to be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we will do that to help achieve the ability to treat all these people when it gets to that point. With this whole thing, there's fewer visits to primary care providers. Since there's fewer visits to primary care providers, there's fewer referrals to the surgeons. So we're also seeing a decrease in the number of patients we're seeing per week. So that's helping. But it is building up because problems with health, problems with the body do not stop because of the pandemic. They continue. So already overworked and exhausted medical providers may continue to be slammed after the pandemic subsides. That is CPR's Claire Cleveland, a Max Weisick news fellow. The coronavirus isn't the only thing waiting to pounce. So are scammers. The state has seen a steep increase in fraud complaints since the outbreak began. More than 300 complaints in March alone, from vastly inflated prices for hand sanitizer to identity thieves using the promise of federal relief money to get into people's bank accounts. Colorado's Attorney General Phil Weiser joins us now to talk about the scams that most concern him. He also has some news on a much bigger fraud case. And Phil Weiser, good morning. Brian, it's great to be with you. Let's start with this announcement. Your office has been investigating two companies involved in the expansion of the Colorado Convention Center in Denver. Uh, They're being accused of rigging bids for the work and embellishing the contract. Uh, What can you tell us about the investigation? 
So we've been able to come to terms with one of the companies, Mortensen. They're a large construction firm. Mm. And what the issue here involves, as you noted, big rigging. The integrity of public procurement processes is really important. People all need to know it's a level playing field. There's not if insider dealing or coordination that is untoward. That's what happened here is there was a unfair set of arrangements made that gave Mortensen an advantage. Uh, they have now entered into an agreement with our office. We're going to get basically all the money we possibly could have got, how we want a trial, because they recognized there was wrongdoing. We've also had a commitment from them to take on some COVID-19-related construction effort to help the city. They really wanted to try to do right. And finally, a series of commitments around ethics and compliance to make sure that the culture changes so that this sort of thing doesn't happen again. All right. So I understand that you'll get about $650,000 of work from Mortensen. And exactly where will they funnel that work as as repentance, for lack of a better term? The 650000 is a floor. It may end up being more than that. And the goal is to do something in Denver, the site of the harm, if you will, and to address the challenges we're now experiencing around COVID-19. To the extent we need to be a little more flexible on a criteria, we will do so. The idea, again, is use their expertise to help our state, particularly at this uh, challenging and important time. I know that the convention center at the moment is being set up as overflow for hospital capacity. Will Mortensen's work as an apology be involved in any of that, or is this separate? This is separate from that, and I believe that is mostly done so that that's not an option. So we're going to look for the rights of a project. Okay, I mentioned two companies. It's Mortensen, and then it's this other company called Trammell Crow, which was, I believe, the city's program manager on the expansion and renovation of the Colorado Convention Center. So what's up with that second party? We have not reached agreement with them. We will see if that happens. Uh, If that is not able to happen, we're prepared to go ahead and litigate. The principle here is really important to us, which is if you are going to engage in, again, untoward, wrongful practices related to procurement, we're going to hold you accountable. The public deserves a fair procurement process. That didn't happen here. And we're going to make sure we protect the public. And I think that the fundamental pain you point to here is that smaller firms and potentially women and minority-owned firms, they just didn't have a level playing field to compete. That's the effect of this. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's it's really a multi-prong effect. Obviously, the price is a big one, which is yeah. if someone knows exactly what's needed and they can basically help design the requirements so that they have an unfair advantage, they may end up charging more than would have happened in competitive market. But your point is also really important, which is when you have an insider's game, when people who are in the club work together, they are excluding others. And the people who often get excluded, you're right, they're people of color and they're women. And part of the commitments that Mortensen made is to help support people of color and women in construction procurement processes going forward. All right. You heard it here first at CPR News. And there is more information from our own Allison Sherry at CPR.org. Read the digital article. Let's change directions. Attorney General Phil Weiser to talk about COVID-19 fraud. At a webinar with AARP members recently, you said some of the scammers deserve a, quote, special spot in hell for what they're doing to people. What's the most egregious pandemic scam you've encountered in Colorado? There are a number of them that I think are, uh, to me, particularly egregious. One that is galling to me is those people who are desperate because they're out of work and they need money badly, scammers saying to them, will you give me 
your bank account number so I can get you your stimulus check quicker. Mm. When in fact, what's happening is an effort to drain or indeed overdraw that bank account playing on that desperation. This is the theme that scammers will often do. They will prey on people who are vulnerable, who are desperate, often at a time when they're already hurting. And yes, that deserves a special place in hell. A special place in hell. I I don't want to sympathize too much with the perpetrators here, but do you have a sense that the unprecedented economic times are driving people to crime who otherwise wouldn't be? Or do you think these are people already in the game who are pouncing? These are people already in the game. And the reason I'm confident about that is because these scammers keep getting more sophisticated in how they approach their scams. And so I don't believe that it's someone who is working at a McDonald's or a hardware store, and they basically had to say, I got to meet the end, make the ends meet somehow. I think what's happening is you've got scammers with a toolkit, and they're saying, okay, I now have a new way to get at people's money. I'm going to prey on them because they're all waiting for these stimulus checks. And they know how to use that information. Again, most people don't think about getting other people's bank account information to drain the bank account on false pretenses. That takes someone who has developed this. And unfortunately, the reason they do it is because they can make money at it. Yeah. You've said in a lot of speeches that people should stop answering their phones if they don't know the number calling. You have also said there is no cure for the coronavirus, no potion, no cream, no vaccine. Is part of the fraud peddling miracle cures, which, you know, feels like a crime as old as time? Yes, indeed. What you put your finger on, Ryan, is that there's two types of ways these scammers will operate. One is they prey on people's fears and desperation. The other one is they prey on people's hope. So people desperately want to be tested quickly or to be cured or to have a vaccine. And, of course, scammers come out offering those false cures. Uh, used to be called snake oil salesmen when they went door to door. Now they're doing it online or sometimes over the phone. Any quick advice besides what I mentioned? You covered the bases really well. But what I want to touch on is a couple things. One is how many people have stepped up to help. So as you noted, we've gotten a lot of complaints, now over 650 or so, all around COVID-19 issues. And that's because people are seeing these scams out there. They're letting us know. Mm. StopFraudColorado.gov is where you can go. Report what's going on so we can help you. And then get the word out, particularly for older Coloradans who tend to be more vulnerable for these scams. What I've seen now that inspires me is how many people are stepping up to help one another. Stop. Pardon me. StopFraudColorado.gov. StopFraudColorado.gov. Thanks so much, Attorney General Phil Weiser. He is the state's Attorney General. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how the Democratic Party addresses any fissures between the Bernie and the Biden folks. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is committed to covering emerging stories and delving deeply into the details of what's happening now without fear, hype, or compromise. This vital news coverage, as well as CPR's essential music service, is made possible through community support. If you're a member of CPR, thank you. Your support ensures impartial journalism, statewide coverage, and an informed public. Help sustain this community resource. Donate at CPR.org. 
Twice now, Coloradans have chosen Senator Bernie Sanders as their pick for the Democratic presidential nomination. And twice now, Sanders has lost that bid. This time, former Vice President Joe Biden becomes the party's presumptive nominee. That's after Sanders suspended his campaign last week, albeit with an asterisk. How does the senator's departure and Biden's ascent play out in Colorado with Democrats, unaffiliated swing voters? We're going to explore that with political scientist Seth Maskett. He directs the University of Denver Center on American Politics. Welcome back, Seth. Hi, thanks for having me on. Also with us, former state representative Joe Salazar. He was a co-chair of Sanders' 2020 campaign here in Colorado. Joe, good to have you back. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well, all things considered. And Rick Palacio, formerly chaired the Colorado Democratic Party, now works as a political consultant in Denver. Hi again, Rick. Good morning, Ryan. Nice to hear your voice. So, Seth, you've closely followed caucus and primary season, jetting from state to state when that was still a thing. Uh, Contrast for me, Sanders' win in Colorado with his performance elsewhere. I mean, of course, he did well in New Hampshire and Iowa, too, but... There's clearly a difference between what Coloradans decided and many other other states that have voted so far. There was a, a really interesting thing on Super Tuesday. I mean, a couple of interesting things that happened um, that basically a number of uh, other rival candidates dropped out right before Super Tuesday. And a lot of the party was converging behind Joe Biden. And one of the things you saw, that the places where Sanders still did pretty well um, on Super Tuesday were places like Colorado, California, Utah, basically places with a lot of early voting. So a lot of the ballots were already in before many of those candidates had dropped out. Mm. Um, so in many ways, it was a window to a, to a somewhat earlier version um, of that race from the week before. Um, by the, you know, For most of the voters that have voted on that day, a lot of them were just were, were suddenly leaning Biden and moving away from other candidates like like Buttigieg and, and Klobuchar and Warren. Joe Salazar, what would you add? Oh, I'm not so certain that that's, uh, that's how it played out. I mean, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders won Colorado by a fair, a pretty, pretty fair margin. Uh, it wasn't the 20 point uh, margin that he won in 2016. But he also didn't have, you know, six to eight candidates running against him here in the state. Uh, I think Bernie Sanders definitely demonstrated that Colorado is still very progressive, uh, particularly with our unaffiliated voters uh, who are also leading progressive, as well as uh, a number of Democrats. Uh, We were able to demonstrate that Colorado is a progressive state, and that's the direction we want to move in. But uh, it is a fact, isn't it, though, that there were many people on the Colorado ballot who had dropped out by the time Super Tuesday swung around. Well, that's true. I mean, they dropped out, uh, I believe it was uh, Sunday, the Sunday before, and endorsements started rolling in for Biden. Um, But for those individuals who did vote late, and we know a lot of people, um, such as communities of color, vote late, um, uh, usually on Election Day, on that Tuesday, it didn't seem to have a a remarkable effect on, on Bernie Sanders. Uh, it did in other places across the uh, nation. Uh, I will uh, certainly uh, tip my hat to, to, to Joe Biden on that. Um, the uh, the Clyburn endorsement uh, really helped him out quite a bit uh, leading up to Super Tuesday. But, uh, but here in Colorado, we stayed solid Bernie. Uh, Rick, the Washington Post reported late last week that after Sanders suspended his campaign, Biden moved forward with new proposals to expand access to health care and to curtail student loan debt. 
That is presumably to appeal to Sanders supporters. One, do you buy that assessment? And uh, two, do you think that's a good start toward unification? Is unification necessary? I don't want to overstate any fissures in the party. What's your sense of it, Rick? Well, I, I think uh, unification is, of course, it's important. Um, I think that, that Senator Sanders and uh, Vice President Biden have always shared the same goal of a fairer and more just uh, America. Uh, so I, I think that uh, the the nod towards some of the, the more progressive uh, members of our party uh, in Biden's uh, embrace of forgiveness of uh, student loan debt from public colleges and universities, uh, I think, uh, gives uh, gives some credence to that. I think, you know, what he's also done is he's said that he supports uh, lowering the Medicare eligibility rate uh, age from, from 65 to 60. So I think those are both important steps that he's taken. Um, but, you know, Ryan, one of the things that I think is important to note is that Democratic primary voters' number one priority uh, from the very beginning of this primary to, to now has been beating Donald Trump. And that's the most important thing that I think that we need to focus on. Joe Salazar, is that what has been motivating you as a voter? Oh, absolutely. We have to get Donald Trump out of office. He has been just an absolute train wreck for this country. Um, We've seen it all across the board from communities of color to our immigrant communities to our LGBTQ community. I mean, you name it. I mean, the guy has just been an utter train wreck. Um, I will tell you that... uh, Uh, unification is very important. And some of what Joe Biden is talking about is helpful. But uh, he still can't see the forest because of the trees when it comes to the issue of health care. This coronavirus crisis that we're in has demonstrated the weakness of our health care system, something that Bernie Sanders has been talking about literally for decades. And lowering the uh, Medicare eligibility to 60 doesn't take care of people who will be suffering from bankruptcies as a result of this virus, um, you know, in their 40s, in their 30s, in their 50s. Um, That's the direction that we need to move in. And Joe Biden just hasn't done enough. He still wants to hold on to things like uh, the Affordable Care Act and trying to tweak it. But I wrote an op-ed just uh, last week where we talked about how the Affordable Care Act has not helped uh, a lot of families in the United States when it comes to health care. In fact, over 550,000 people file for bankruptcy every single year as a result of um, medical, uh, medical bills. And the Affordable Care Act has not helped help that out at all. I so if we want also... some unification, if we want unification, Joe Biden needs to think bigger than what he is. I'll say the future of the Affordable Care Act is also in uh, jeopardy in some question, uh, given that it's in the courts right now. Seth Maskett, a narrative that has persisted from 2016 is that with Hillary Clinton as the nominee then, Democratic turnout was less than stellar. Bernie's supporters continued to have hurt feelings. Of course, Clinton won the popular vote. One, is that picture of 2016 accurate? And if so, is 2020 a repeat of it? Uh, it's hard to say whether that's accurate. I mean, if you look at, you know, you know, part of this is based on the idea of what Hillary Clinton should have done. Um, you know, a lot of people just looked at that election and said, well, of course, she should have wiped the floor with Donald Trump. But, you know, you just, you step back from the campaigns, you step back from, uh, uh, you know, the, the personalities of the candidates. And 
just in terms of basic predictions, uh, what we would have said a year earlier um, about how a you know the Democratic Party trying to hold on to the White House for a third term in a pretty good economy, that tends to suggest it's probably a toss-up election. Hillary Clinton probably did about as well as most other Democrats would have done as the nominee. Hmm. Um, so it's hard to say that she really massively underperformed. Um, she just, you know, for, for Democrats, it was a real disappointment, and they were kind of looking for reasons to explain that. Rick Palacio, does 2020 feel like deja vu from 2016 to you, or is, does this feel like a very different race? No, I, I think this is a very different race. I think that what we're looking at right now is a referendum on Donald Trump and his uh, really his reaction and his lack of leadership in the face of this historic pandemic. Uh, what we've seen from the White House is uh, first ignoring and then delaying help and then politicizing help to the states. And that's not what the American people are, are looking for. What they're looking for is someone who uh, who can uh, take the reins and who can be a solid leader. I think that Coloradans want leadership like they're getting, frankly, from, from Governor Polis and, and uh, A.G. Weiser, who you just had on. That's not what's happening from Donald Trump. And I think that this election is going to be a referendum on that. Are you saying that Democrats aren't at all politicizing COVID-19? Well, I, I think that what the American people are focused on is making sure that we get through this crisis, making sure that, that the health and safety of the American people is the number one priority. What we're seeing out of Washington is really Donald Trump politicizing uh, both uh, PPEs, ventilators, and a ton of other things. And it's not what the American people are looking for. Joe Salazar, are you on the Biden bus yet? You were explaining just earlier how you'd like him to move uh, more on health care. Does he solidly have your vote or... And let me just note that after, you know, Sanders suspended his campaign, he made it clear that he is carrying uh, what power and what delegates he has to the convention, I think, to probably eke out uh, some changes. Tell me about your thoughts on Joe Biden, your willingness to vote for him, Joe Salazar. Yeah. So a couple of things I want to I want to separate out endorsement from vote. Yeah. In 2016, I voted for Hillary Clinton, but I refused to endorse her because her platform did not address many of the issues that Coloradans are concerned with. And in 2020, oh, I definitely will vote for Joe Biden, but I am not in a place to uh, wanting to give him my endorsement or to go and speak with progressives about why they should vote for Joe Biden. He has to earn that vote, just like any other politician needs to earn that vote. But I will tell you that I agree with Rick 100 percent in the sense that Donald Trump is like a schoolyard bully who is doling out candy to his sycophants only if they praise him. Right. And that's exactly what we're seeing with PPE, with ventilators. I mean, my goodness, there was a big article last week about I'm sending ventilators to Colorado because I like Cory Gardner. I mean, I haven't seen any Democrats politicize or weaponize their politics Uh, surrounding coronavirus, quite like Donald Trump has. Uh, Our governor has done a pretty stellar job in terms of dealing with the coronavirus here, even though he doesn't have a friendly uh, federal government to work with. And um, and so when you ask the question, uh, are Democrats politicizing uh, coronavirus? I will say that uh, no one is politicizing it at the level that Donald Trump is. And we see what an abysmal failure his response to this coronavirus has been. Joe Salazar, has Joe Biden or uh, has his campaign reached out to you for an endorsement? I'm just curious. 
No, not as of yet. Okay. Um, you know, my my phone is always open, but um, I, I imagine that he has some other things to take care of right now outside of <laughs> reaching out to Joe Salazar in, in Colorado. Well, if uh, the vice president is listening, you've heard that. Joe Salazar's <laughs> phone is open. Okay, so a, a big theme that has already emerged without my having mentioned it much is COVID-19. Seth Maskes, has this become a COVID-19 election? Do we expect other issues to bubble up or or is it the issue of this campaign now? I mean, so far it is the issue, and it's and it's really kind of telling uh, because it, it's really hard for anyone to get in any message otherwise right now. Um, it's it's really transforming the race not only because it's a big issue, but because it's it's changed the way campaigns are run. Uh, there's you know there's been no rallies for a month. Um, the you know candidates are trying to get in other messages, but. This is really all for good reason anyone wants to talk about right now. I, I think it, it's a real question as to, you know, whether we'll still be talking about it in the same way come September, October. But, you know, another important way it's clouding it is that we don't know what voting is going to look like in the mm-hmm. fall. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've seen some really troublesome signs um, with some of the primaries of the last few weeks um, that, you know, there are there are alternatives to the way we've been conducting conducting primaries. They don't necessarily have to be done in person. Uh, You know, the way Colorado does them could be a pretty good model for uh, other states. But um, that could be a a very important issue in the way, uh, you know, what voter turnout and voter results, uh, election results look like in the fall. Yeah, lots of conversations right now about mail-in voting, which, of course, Colorado has. Rick Palacio, you have a long career in politics, just... Uh, reflect a little bit on what you heard there from Seth and on this moment. I mean, it's unprecedented, I gather, for you as well. Well, I think Seth is right. I think that there are a number of challenges that are happening around the country uh, as to how people are going to vote. And I think for the first time in a very long time, even Republicans are talking about uh, making it easier for people to to vote from home and, and vote by mail, which course, uh, we do well in, in Colorado. And I think that it's important that, that you give people the franchise, you make sure that they have the ability. Um, I, I think, again, going back to my, my last point, this election uh, is really a, a simple question. Do the American people have faith in President Trump's ability to lead in a time of crisis? Or do we want to see someone who has uh, proven time and time again that he can deliver when it counts? And I think that uh, that choice is going to ultimately in Colorado be Joe Biden and I think across the country as well. Joe Salazar, just a few seconds left. The convention itself is going to be fascinating, isn't it? Oh, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like. Yeah. I, I'm just, I'm interested to see what the, like the, 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 the internal workings, the infrastructure of it will be if we're still, um, if we're still staying at home um, all the way through July. Thanks to all of you for being with us. I really appreciate your perspectives. You heard from Fort's former State Representative Joe Salazar, co-chair for Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign in Colorado. Also, Rick Palacio, political consultant and former chair of the Colorado Democratic Party, and DU political scientist Seth Maskett. After a break, why refugees are particularly susceptible to coronavirus. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado saw its first case of the novel coronavirus on March 5th, and since then we've spoken to dozens of medical professionals and community members to better understand the behavior of the virus and how it's affecting our lives. 
Hey, it's John Daly, health reporter at CPR News. And on Tuesday at 1030, my editor, Kate Schimmel, and I will be holding an Ask Me Anything on Reddit. If you've got questions about coronavirus in Colorado, ask us on reddit.com slash r slash coronavirus Colorado. Refugees who've settled in Colorado have often escaped persecution. Now they face the coronavirus and are particularly vulnerable. Family doctor P.J. Parmer works with refugees in Denver. He says half the patients he's tested for COVID-19 turn out to be positive. I think we have a high prevalence in the refugee community because it's a poorer community. And when you have poorer patients, they are living more densely and they don't have the luxury of being able to leave from work as readily. And not only is their housing unit, whether that's an apartment or a house dense, they're usually stacked one on top of each other and block to block of the same density. And also, if they're going anywhere, they're on public transport. These are all areas of high transmission. He says many refugees have the same underlying conditions that make anyone more susceptible, like diabetes. Others spent time in refugee camps where they developed lung disease. We do seem to have a high degree of people with COPD that isn't necessarily from smoking. It's from, some people call it hot lung. That's breathing, inhaled, burning wood or cow dung or other biomass inside an enclosed space. For some of them, it's been decades of this, and it leads to a form of COPD, which can require different inhalers and therefore also make coronavirus response worse. Colorado's refugees come from all over the world, Burma, Somalia, and Iraq. Language can be a barrier to getting treatment. So can medical abbreviations and the nuances of the American healthcare system. Dr. Palmer says he has one patient, a 20-something, who's in the hospital with COVID-19. Many Americans maybe know what the intensive care unit is or what it means to be in the ICU. For example, the one family came and told me, oh, our family member's in the hospital. They didn't tell me that they're in the ICU. I'm, a, I'm only able to look that up on the computer, whereas Americans I know who are going through this are more readily able to grasp that that's a different category of hospital, for example, and that that could be a much more serious situation. Dr. Palmer's refugee patients have been through a lot already. Meanwhile, they worry about the coronavirus affecting people, whether it's friends or families they've left behind. They know that folks where they come from are facing much worse situations and even unquantifiable situations because there's no testing where they're coming from. And I've, I've had some reports of mysterious depths where the families are, whether that be the camps or the cities overseas, and they just inevitably mark it up to some unknown cause where I'm pretty sure that the virus is making the rounds throughout the world. That is family doctor P.J. Parmer, who works with refugees in Denver. He says half of the patients he's tested for COVID-19 are positive. One topic we get a ton of questions about through Colorado Wonders is the DIY masks people have been making since the earliest days of the pandemic. Now that masks are recommended for everyone who's out and about in Colorado, new questions are flowing in about mask etiquette 
and efficacy. CPR's Kelly Griffin edits Colorado Wonders and has some answers. Hi, Kel. Hi, Ryan. What should people look for in masks? Well, the key thing is covering the nose and the mouth securely. And ideally with something that can kind of hold the mask over the shape of the bridge of the nose. I saw one pattern that had you put like a pipe cleaner tucked in the mask so that it would fit around the bridge. And this is important because the policy about masks change when evidence mounted that people who don't even have symptoms could be shedding the virus through coughs and sneezes and even just breathing. And in fact, it seems like people could have the virus and be spreading it up to 48 hours before they even show symptoms. So officials decided if everyone masked up, it could help. So with a mask, we are protecting other people from us. Correct. And if you have symptoms, you shouldn't go to the grocery store, officials tell us. Stay isolated. Yeah, a mask doesn't cut it in that case. Um, Still, the question remains, how reliable are, say, the cloth masks? That is the big question. They have said the best tools to avoid infection are social distancing, washing your hands and keeping your hands away from your face. So some officials worry people will think the mask is now the main precaution and they'll get sloppy on the other parts. Dr. Michelle Barron is the Medical Director of Infection Prevention at the University of Colorado Hospital. Yes, I worry a little bit about the false sense of security that people wearing these masks will actually start to have. And at the end of the day, most of the transmission is still going to be from contamination of surfaces and through your hands touching these contaminated surfaces. And so having this mask on gives you this sense of, oh, well, it's not such a big deal. Maybe I can talk to my neighbors now. Maybe I can hang out at the grocery store a little bit longer. Maybe I can do all these other things and lose that awareness that your hands are still touching all sorts of things. So think of it this way. You go to the grocery store and your mask helps keep your potentially infected droplets from spreading into the store. But if someone else has touched their own infected mask and then touched the produce or canned goods, you could pick up the virus when you touch those things and transfer it to your mask and then your face if you aren't careful. Boy, that's not, that's not helping my hypervigilant nature. With so many people wearing masks... What are the do's and don'ts of daily use? Well, get a good fit around your nose and under your mouth. Uh, A couple of layers of cloth, they say cotton is good, a tight weave. And when you're out and about, you should still stay at least six feet away from people. And when you come home, don't stuff the mask in your purse or coat pocket or leave it in your car and then use it again. You don't get multiple trips out with these. And don't touch the front of the mask. Assume it's contaminated. Take it off using the straps around your ears and then drop it straight into the washing machine or a bucket of water with laundry detergent. You should treat it as if it's infected, actually, from exposure to other people breathing or coughing. And, of course, not everyone is even wearing a mask. Or maybe you've inadvertently touched something and then put your hands on your mask. And then wash your hands. Apparently, we can't overstate that. Dr. Michelle Barron certainly doesn't think so. I've said this a hundred times, and Brian will tell you I say this every time I'm on his show. I'm like, you got to wash your hands. You got to wash your hands. Your hands, your hands, your hands. At the end of the day, your hands are how this gets places. Wash your hands. What are the consequences for people who don't wear masks? Well, it is voluntary, at least right now. Governor Polis has said he hopes it will become a point of pride for Colorado to demonstrate their willingness to help the broader community by wearing them. 
And he stressed how easy it is to make one if you simply have a t-shirt or a towel. And I know of folks using cloth napkins or bandanas. Um, there are a lot of people offering them for sale now. Of course, just remember, if you get some picked up, you need to wash them before you wear them. And there are patterns for making them without even using a sewing machine at coloradomaskproject.com. Yeah, early on, I fashioned one with a bandana and rubber bands. Kelly, thanks so much for the update. You're welcome, Ryan. CPR's Kelly Griffin edits Colorado Wonder. Is in your questions about anything in this state that makes you go, hmm, are welcome. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Finally today, we asked Colorado musicians to let us know how COVID-19 cancellations are affecting them. For many artists, live shows are their primary source of income and exposure. One reply came from Darcy Nelson of Denver. She makes most of her money playing farmer's markets. Despite a lot of lost gigs, Nelson remains optimistic. I'm really trying to look for the opportunities in this moment. How can I be more creative? How can I take this opportunity to create new art, learn new skills, and really instead of leaning into fear, to just see it as an opportunity that I have some more free time and maybe some more people to share encouragement and my music with. One way Nelson shares her music is through NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. In her entry video, she's pulled on a moving camera rig through an exhibition at the Denver Art Museum. Every could be that I burn through Brings me closer to my truth And sometimes it feels like a loss disappointment over lovers toss but I'm empowered I know my worth and I won't settle on this earth for someone who doesn't know my worth cause I'm magic and I am Denver artist Darcy Nelson playing My Truth. If you're a Colorado musician affected by COVID-19 cancellations, email us, Colorado Matters at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.